Well, John chapter 9. I want to welcome you to Genesis Community Church. I'm glad you're here. Michael offered to read for me. My voice is almost back, but it decided to leave me on Thursday, and I went looking for it. <clears throat> and um, I had committed earlier to make no one have to read all 41 verses of John 9, because that's a lot. But on a whim, this morning, he goes, yeah, I'll read it for you. So, good job. Thank you very much. And there's a reason to take all of John 9. To this point in our, in our sermon series on the Gospel of John, we have not done an entire chapter like this. We've done larger sections, but not an entire chapter. But part of that is because if we take a larger piece, God doesn't say, in my estimation on preaching, you must preach a passage that is X amount of verses long. Um, so whether we do this in three sermons or in five sermons or in one sermon, we want to be able to follow the flow. And what we get to see in it when we go all at once is that Jesus actually only shows up at the beginning at the end. And the middle of it is the questioning and interrogation that happens of the man or his parents about what had happened. <clears throat> and it's a great story that, that comes shortly after Jesus had declared himself the light of the world. He's the way people see. And so now we have this miracle that comes in John chapter 9 of Jesus healing a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. As an aside, uh, one of the more fun things that we've, uh, we or I've been able to do this year is uh, in our little Genesis podcast we have is, is hearing people's testimonies. I don't know how many we've done so far this year, 10, 12, 15, somewhere around there. But you get to hear church members talk about what the Lord has done in their life. And that song we just sang, All My Life You Have Been Faithful, the consistent theme that everyone seems to say when it finishes is just how faithful God has been toward them, even in their sin, in his pursuit of them, in his care for them. And it doesn't matter if they came to faith at 3, 5, 10, 18, 25. It doesn't matter when. There always is in these stories kind of this, this moment. And it doesn't necessarily happen like, boom, all is well. Some people have that very kind of clear moment where they know I was here and now I'm here. Others, it feels like a little bit of a process where they go, it could have been here, it could have been here, it could have been here. All I know is it happened. But everyone has that testimony of God intervening in their life and them not being the same because of it. That always happens. It doesn't matter. These people don't know each other all the time and grow up together, but they're still all telling the same story. And what we get as we go into John chapter 9, <clears throat> is what I would say is both an explanation of Jesus being the light of the world, the way people see, and also as a part of that, how people come to see. Okay, so we get Jesus being the light of the world, that he is the way we see, he is the true light, that's a theme in John from the beginning, from chapter 1, he is the true light, but then also, how do we change? How does that happen? 
And you see in the testimony of the man born blind, even that transition where he doesn't really know who Jesus is. All he does is say, it was that guy. It was that guy. And then you hear toward the end, right? You hear, you hear Jesus say, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man's like, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? And he goes, it's the one speaking to you. And he's like, well, then yes, I believe. And so you even hear the, the, the kindness of Jesus toward this man born blind, even before the man born blind knew who Jesus fully was. And it's all so that, as we see toward the beginning of the passage, the glory, the work of God may be manifest. And so we get to see this whole transition. And so what we'll do is, you've already heard it read, and read very well. Um, you know, now I'll never not hear somebody like, whoa, how do you, right? Like there's this good um, questioning, kind of arrogant, pompous voice of the spiritually blind. And this kind of questioning, worshipful voice of the man who was born physically blind. And through the Lord healing his physical blindness, both his physical and spiritual blindness have been healed. So, again is the theme, because in just in the middle of chapter 8, we're hearing Jesus say, the light of the world. For us, that was a while ago, weeks-wise. But for the reading through of John, it was not a while ago. It was just, you know, a few dozen verses ago. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? What does it mean? And as we see this interaction, we're going to learn about the way Jesus heals. And through his coming into the world, what it reveals to those who think they can see. And those who recognize they cannot. Remember that the Gospel of John is always, it seems, speaking on, on multiple levels. That, that physical blindness in this instance is also kind of an example of spiritual blindness. And it takes the intervention of Jesus for spiritual blindness to be healed. It takes his work for spiritual blindness to be overcome. And so this isn't, hear me, this isn't just a passage on Jesus he healing physical blindness. Foundationally, this is a passage on Jesus revealing spiritual blindness and how it is overcome, which is through him. You'll notice that it is the presence of Jesus that actually highlights, we could say, spiritual blindness. And that's his comments to the religious leadership. I'm here to bring judgment and... Those who think they can see can't, and those who can't will, which is a way that the Messiah has always worked. Why? Because Jesus' methodology, the way he approached ministry was to go to those who were lost, who were far off, who were broken. His harshest words were always saved for those who thought they were fine. And, and the strongest statements he made about their arrogance and lostness came to the religious leadership who were so sure of themselves and so sure of what was right. And all through the Gospel of John to this point, we have been seeing, if we're seeing, we have been seeing Jesus reveal what actually is. 
So we start with the healing. This really kind of goes into three parts. There's the healing. There's the questioning. That's where Jesus leaves, right? Jesus shows up in the healing. Jesus has gone somewhere. There's the questioning. And then there's Jesus interacting with the man again. So Jesus interacts with the man here. The man and his family are questioned here. Jesus interacts with the man again here. Okay, and we have those three movements. We're going to follow those three movements uh, right here for us. So, what we have, and we have to go back to John 8, 12 to remember this. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so... The long passages we've done of the Feast of Booths is done. We've kind of gone through that. Now we're coming into a new spot. And he finds the man born blind from birth. And that's going to be important. That's important because it brings up the question about sin. This is going to be a bit funky because... Jesus answers the question for John 9, but John 9 doesn't answer the question for every instance. Okay? So here's what he answers. Rabbi, verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because I would say it's even hell today that whatever condition we're in <clears throat> is because of something that has been done. Right? Like it's usually how we think. And the disciples thought the same way. Because he's like this, tell us what happened. Was it something wrong that he did? <clears throat> or was it something wrong that his parents did? Which one is it? Now, it is true that sin has consequences. I would assume everyone in this room has lived that in some way. That you get into a certain condition because of sin. And you have to live with those consequences. And it doesn't matter what they are. I was speaking with somebody even over the past few days. Maybe it was one of you, but my mind's a little foggy into which one it was. But my mom, you guys know this, my mom died five years ago. And there were some, as a son, just some terrible, jerky things that I said and did to my mom. Like, not proud, embarrassing on the lowlights of Hans's life. And I, in a way, like I live with that. Because some of them I never really had a conversation with my mom even about. Even as an adult, even as you know, her adult son. I just didn't have that conversation. And so I know my mom. I know her heart. Oh, Hans. Yeah, it was nothing. But I can't have that conversation with her. Right? The, the, the ability to have the conversation is even gone. Right? Like, but, but you can live with the fact that, yeah, I did say that. The sins we've committed, the things that we've done, there are earthly consequences. So we recognize that, but in this instance, the disciples want to know who did it. And there are other instances where what might be going on is not due to sin but so that God may demonstrate something. And it does take discernment 
to know which one it might be very quickly. Like, I, this happened with a friend of mine who got dengue fever. Anybody had gotten dengue fever? Not a, not a fun thing to get. So a guy I know, a mentor of mine, he got dengue fever. And at first, everyone is trying to, you know, praying for healing and hoping he's okay and whatever else. But the longer he was sick, the more they wondered how much he had sinned. Because that's where people get. <clears throat> well, how long does this go on before I start wondering if the problem's you? And he's like, dude, I, you know, I, I don't know what I did. I was doing ministry in another country and I got dengue fever. That's what happened. So we don't always know. And that's what Jesus is there to say for us is that in this instance we know because Jesus brings the clarity that we need. But because we have the clarity here, it doesn't mean that we always have that clarity in every situation. And Jesus lets us know what's coming. It wasn't the man who sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed. So no, it is not a sin. Suffering is not always a punishment for sin. Those of you who even right now might be going through a difficult time, I cannot necessarily say to you why. But sometimes we might be going, did I do something, God? Did I do something that's making this happen? And if I could stop doing it, would it stop happening? I, I can't give you the answer to that. But I can say if we're not careful, we slip into works again. If I do better things, God will bless me more. And since I don't have the blessing that I want, I must not be doing enough good things. Right? We have that little bit we feel where we wonder, what's the relationship between how I'm living and what I'm receiving? And we recognize that in Scripture that relationship does exist. But, but how do we actually work that thing out? It becomes very difficult. Like when Peter tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers are not hindered. There seems to be then, from Peter, a correlation between the way a husband treats his wife and the way his prayers are responded to, the relationship that he has with God. But I can't demonstrate in every instance what it might be. In Numbers 21, Israelites have sinned, and the Lord sends serpents into the land to bite them so that they may die. Punishing their rebellion and their disobedience, Moses intercedes. Remember, this is where the serpent is made. If they look on the serpent, they will be healed. And Jesus uses this illustration in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus to say, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so everybody who looks to the son who is lifted up will be forgiven. So we go, well, Numbers 21 is a punishment for sin, but Numbers 21 is also to prefigure something that Jesus is going to do. So there is something we can learn, even in these first couple of verses, which helps us, which is one, how to treat others. We cannot look at where somebody is and then arrogantly assume we know what's going on with them. And say, oh yeah, well, because, because you're here, because your situation's like this, because your kids are being disobedient, because you struggle in this spot at work, or because your marriage feels more difficult, it's because you are not following God. 
And then secondly, we would, and it should, it's just like we see in Jesus' half-brother James, we must ask God for wisdom when we are in trials to understand rightly what is going on. The request for wisdom in James chapter 1 comes in the context of trials. And so it takes for us in these moments to go, God, what are you doing here? Unfortunately, we don't always get the answer. But what can we do? We can still sing, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been good. Because that has been demonstrated. We may not even know until the very back end what has gone on. We are so quick to want to know in the moment why something might be. But it might take years. This man was born blind from birth. We know that he's at least 13 because his parents say he's of age. And so that is a over decade long or decades long ailment that exists so that this moment can happen. And the understanding on why it exists wasn't even made clear until Jesus entered the scene. Because Jesus brings the clarity that we need in this. So Jesus says time is short, we must work. That means his time on this earth, the works that he's doing as the Messiah in verses 4 and 5. So we're going to work when it is day, when you can see me, when these can be done. Because these are still demonstrating something about him. Night is coming when he's gone and it will not be the same. So he spits and he rubs mud on the man's eyes. The kids are going to be painting with mud in the kids' classrooms, but it's with water, just so you know. Now, like spit in this cup and paint it on your friend's, friend's eyes. <clears throat> That's not the craft. It's water mud, not spit mud. Just, you know, maybe in 2019 we would have spit mud, but not anymore. Not anymore. Probably a good thing. So, anybody wants to come act it out with me, you can be the man born blind. And there is this funny question, like, why? This seems like an odd thing. For a guy who can just put somebody's ear back on without glue or anything, you know, just... For a guy who can do that, who can just say the word, just say the word, and it can happen, it's odd to me, and maybe to you, that there is this time where he uses spit, and dirt and tells a man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And there are different ideas that are posited. Well, because man came from dust, and so Jesus is in, in even repurposing you know, re, uh, or reimagining that and bringing through creation life and sight that couldn't have been made otherwise only through him. Uh, could perhaps be showing that nothing is unclean to Jesus in the same way he's been demonstrating that, you know, in, in other Gospels we read not what goes into the man's mouth, but what comes out that makes him unclean. He's demonstrating that there's no physical uncleanness that might be. It could be, and many people would say, um, to test faith. Are you really going to do what I ask? You know, to, to, are you, are you, do you believe what's to be done? And so to go and to have it and to wash and to see, 
Like all of those could be parts of it. It could be demonstrating process that some people have of realizing who Jesus is. All of those are there. And you know, for me, maybe we're too far away removed. I'm unsure why the spit is there. I'm unsure why the spit is there. All of those reasons make some bit of sense. The reason that like, Jesus is tangible makes a lot of sense. Like he's doing earthy things. I love that. But not really sure, except that what I know is Jesus heals the man. <clears throat> Jesus heals the man. Like, why in the book of Acts does like, the, the apostles' shadows fall on people and people are healed? Or why napkins? Like, why, why, why napkins heal? I don't know why in Acts that happens, but to demonstrate God's power. To demonstrate God's power. That he can do it. He can heal. And the crowds are, of course, confused. Verses 8 through 12, they're confused because they see this man and they're like, wait a minute, we know him. I was having this conversation with one of our, one of our members, which is, you know, how, how come this happens this way where... Um, you, you, the, the faith walk you have where you think you know something about the Lord, but you're not sure you do or you're not convinced of it. And there's these people who are sure that this man is who he was. We know that's the man. And there are others who are like, no, it can't be because this guy can see. And so people who have grown up knowing this person was who he was are divided over who he is now because he's certainly not the same guy. They weren't expecting to see him. And this is funny because in conversion, I, I would guess, and this probably happens, um, maybe you're one of the only believers in your family. And you come to faith or there's been change in your life. Family or the people who know you best are the ones who are going to believe you least that you're the, you actually changed. You've seen it. They've known you the longest and so they're the least convinced that the change is real because they've seen you at your worst for the longest. And so that's why there's this division. Some are going, this can't be him because he can see. And others go, no, it must, it must be him. And so the guy has to go, no, it is me. It is me. <clears throat> and look at verse 11. This man called Jesus made mud. And look at the word he used, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know. And so we have this moment. Now the, the man, think about this, the man still doesn't know who Jesus is. You just know there's a man named Jesus. And he did this. And then at the end of the passage, he goes, oh, he's the son of man, and he worships him. But this, I think, equates to many of our experiences in the faith. Where we may not know why we are interested in other believers and talking to other believers about the word. One of my favorite things is to hear new Christians talk about their faith. What they're thinking about. Because they, they, they love reading. And they're going, what's happening here? What does this mean? How does this connect? 
And there's this enthusiasm and joy. Other times, there are people who are just interested in things of the Lord. Because why? It's part of the Lord drawing them to himself. And so they're, they're participating in family life. They're connecting. They're talking. Maybe they're in a community group. And they're just sharing what's going on. Or they're sharing what they think. And what they think might be way off the wall. They go, yeah, Jesus is a good man. Like, I like Jesus a lot. He seems cool. That's almost what this man's saying here. Like, there's this man named Jesus. He told me to do this thing. And now I see. That's all I know. And like, well, where is he? Jesus didn't even stick around for accolades. He rolled. Where is he? I don't know where he is. Well, of course, who has to enter? And you'll find if you've been with us long enough in John, you're starting to see now this bit of a flow where a lot of John is moved along by dialogue. There's story, there's interrogation, there's response, and that is how a lot of the narrative of John moves. Jesus does something Leadership doesn't like it, so they question people about it. Jesus gives his reply. The people are still not liking it. We find this throughout. So we'll get back to another spot of dialogue. But there are, it really happens in, <clears throat> it happens three times. They talk to the man, they talk to the man's parents, and then they talk to the man again. Okay, like that, that's the flow. So we have these three spots of dialogue. And the first time when they're with the man, they're angry that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, which he also did in John 5. Remember that? In John 5, he did that, and they were mad, and that's why they want to kill him at the Festival of Booze. They're ready to take him out. Everyone's wanting to get mad at Jesus, but they can't seem to actually pin him down on anything because it's not his time. So the man basically just retells what happens. This is his testimony. He put mud on my eyes. I wash. Now I see. And there's this division among them because they're not sure how this happened. Not sure how this happened. One goes, well, he doesn't keep the Sabbath, so he can't be from God because people from God would keep the Sabbath. And then another goes, if he's a sinner, how could he do this? So, of course, they're divided. They ask the man, tell us what you think. Give us personal testimony. Tell us what you think. And at first he goes, he's a prophet. He's defining Jesus in the language that he has. He's a prophet. He, he, can, he can do things. He moves along by the Spirit of God. He has power to speak truth. He does things that normal people can't do. Clearly, this man's a prophet, which is a question that people have about Jesus throughout John. They're wondering if he's a prophet. Maybe he is. Is this the prophet? They asked that about John the Baptist. They're looking for a prophet. So they go, clearly this man's a prophet. <clears throat> but they weren't sure about a few things, so they talked to the parents. And they want to know, they want to know this. So they really want to know three things. Is this your son? Yes or no? Was he born blind? Yes or no? And how does he see? Those are the three things they want to know because they're trying to verify the man's testimony. So parents answer, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But notice what happens here. They will not answer how he can now see because they're afraid of what might happen to them. And so rather than say definitively, 
It was the work of Jesus that changed him. They punt. And they say, he is of age, ask him yourself. He is of age, ask him yourself. How do we know that? You look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed to put anyone who would confess Jesus, he's to be put out of the synagogue. They don't want to lose status. They don't want to lose title. They don't want to lose how they don't want to lose their congregation, their people. And so rather than answer the pivotal question on who did this, they back away from the table and they say, ask him. So John lets us know through his commentary in 22 and 23 why they said what they said. It wasn't to give their son status to speak for himself. Which we do sometimes as parents, right? We go, hey, no, you need to do that. You need to have that conversation. You need to learn how to talk to adults. You need to learn, like, like, so we'll have these moments where we set our children up at whatever age. So, no, you need to do this. You need to do this. I'm not going to do this for you. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is they go, he needs to do that because we don't want to deal with the consequences of saying it was Jesus. We'll let him deal with the consequences of saying it was Jesus. But didn't Jesus say that he will divide family? Isn't it true that that following Jesus, you wish it were a family endeavor, but it isn't. People come to faith at different times or at all. You make decisions by faith, you walk with the Lord, and who might disagree? Mom, dad, brothers, sisters, people who think, I don't know why you would give away your career. I have a friend who was a petroleum engineer, right? Like, those people are all right, they, they do pretty well for themselves. Gave up petroleum engineering to go run basketball camps amongst the unreached Basketball camps amongst the unreached. No longer with the salary or the benefits or the life that would come with that. Sometimes asking questions, you know, we, we, we will talk from time to time uh, and, and asking questions about, well, you know, flying back is going to be expensive. We haven't been, been around in years. Maybe we should see you know, family or whatever, and but we, we don't feel like we need to. And I'm like, stay there, man. Which parents probably would not like me giving that advice. I'm like, stay there. That's like, that's where you are. You don't feel the burden to get back. You know, stay. It took years for them to pass their first language competency test. But now, you know, pass that. Now they're going into another language so they can do this. Like, giving up status, respectability, in the eyes of the world, salary, the ability to provide, thinking in ways the world doesn't think because Jesus is worth the world. The man, though, in verses 24 through 34, doesn't have an issue talking about what happened to him. And you see this in people who have been changed by Jesus. They talk about it. They don't have to talk about it all the time. They don't have to talk about it to every single person. But when asked, they talk about it. 
And so they called the man over, and they used this. Now, hear this kind of manipulative leadership language. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. You hear that? Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. So, if you want to give glory to God, you would agree with us. If you want to honor God, you will agree with our assessment. Man goes, I don't know. I don't know if he's a sinner. All I know, and this is the line from John 9 that probably most of us know, all I know is that though I was blind, now I see. That's what I know. Now, this is great because it reminds me when it comes to conversion, people putting their faith in Jesus, that they may not be able to be able to explain the hypostatic union, right? Jesus being one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. They might not be able to explain that. Well, tell us, how did Jesus sin? Or could he have ever sinned? Like, I don't know. I mean, that question hasn't been answered. People go, well, is it God nature, man nature, right? So, like, they're, they're drilling down into aspects of the character of Jesus that they're not sure about. The man's not sure about. The man just goes, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Do with that what you will. I can't currently answer all the other questions about this man. I can only answer what has happened. And that can happen in testimony all the time. Now, we would hope as we grow with the Lord, we grow in a knowledge of him, we can understand things better, we can speak about him with more clarity. But at first, are we often all just going, all I know is Jesus showed up and I believe in him now. And that he's, I'm different. That's what I know. That statement demonstrates to us this, I won't even say easy believism, where you just go, oh yeah, I just trust, it's fine, and you never ever grow. That's not what I think it is. But it demonstrates for us that we don't have to know everything to put our faith in Christ. We don't have to answer every question about who he is. Well, how old is the earth? I don't know. Like, older than me. Older than you, right? Like we don't have to go through this whole ordination process to place our faith in Jesus, to recognize that he is good. And we should never just want to only hold to that base level of knowledge either. I would love everybody here to continue to grow in the knowledge of the scriptures, their confidence in what they say, their ability to understand different positions and go, hey, I see this, I see that. And if you've been with us through John, it starts to highlight aspects of, right, where we get into fully God, fully man. We get into the Trinity where Jesus is going to say in a few weeks, I and the Father are one. And these statements about how he operates, but they, they're also inseparable. It's called inseparable operations where the son can't act on his own. The spirit can't act on his own. The father doesn't act on his own because they are once. All of this shows up even as we go through John. And we wrestle with it and we process it and we think about it. But when it comes to, is this man a sinner? He's like, I don't know. All I know is this. He healed me. And they want to know, what'd he do? He's like, I told you, you're not going to listen. And then there's this little, back to the John irony, do you want to believe too? Do you want to be his disciple too? Come on. And they mock him. And they claim that their position is better because they belong to Moses. They belong to Moses, and he belongs to this Jesus. 
<clears throat> so, you know, we don't want to be his disciple. We have something far more ancient. And yet the man goes, yet you can't explain what happened to me. You can't explain what happened to me. And this is an interesting thing when Jesus changes people is that when you talk to people about what the Lord has done in your life and you go, how did that happen? They can't really give a response. How did that happen? How did that, uh, tell me how that happened. Like, we don't know. And he's like, so, so you don't know what happened to me. Verse 30, you don't know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know God does not Listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Look at verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So what you see in this, and you see this in Paul, you see this in the way of Jesus, is that the outcast man born blind speaks with more clarity about the Son of God than the religious leadership of the day. The one who had, would not have been in a spot of leadership, isn't as learned as those who are questioning him, doesn't have the same level of confidence in the scriptures, could not argue in every way that they could argue that that man is looking at this crowd and he's saying, wait a minute, you don't know what happened? Well, we know that If anyone's a sinner, God's not going to listen to him. Only those who do God's will, worship God, do his will. If he weren't from God, he could do nothing. So what happens? Not belief in this moment. They rebuke him. They say, you were born in sin, utter sin. And would you teach us? us?" And they cast him out. The thing that the parents were afraid of happened to the son because he was not afraid to speak about Jesus. So he's out. But he doesn't seem to care. Because you could say once you've found Jesus or been found by Jesus... It redefines what matters most. It redefines what's most significant in your life. So we go to verse 35, and we see this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, which I love, because who goes to the man when the man has been kicked out by the religious leadership? But the Lord. He goes to the man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Remember, this is one of the most favorite titles Jesus gives himself in the book of Daniel, demonstrating who he is. The man goes, who is he that I may believe? Jesus says, you've seen him. It's the one who is speaking to you. Notice, Jesus reveals more of himself to the outcasts. He did the same thing with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He told her who he was. 
when the religious leadership questions him, he goes, you've seen, but you will not believe. You do not know. But Jesus is happy to reveal himself to those who recognize they're not on the inside. I love that. And it really is for me a reminder of how our churches should be always. Our churches should be filled with outsiders who have been found by God. People who think that there's no one else who would pay them any mind. People like you and me. Who if not for Jesus would be in their sins, lost and confused. Pursuing a life of self-gratification. Pursuing a life, doing whatever it is you wanted, trying to be happy and going on the best vacations and having the best stories and being in the best schools and living that life in our lostness. Rather than gathering here and going, I don't know how I showed up here. Jesus having found me. That's what happened. So Jesus reveals himself to the man, verse 37. And look at verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then we hear Jesus' words, which are in earshot of the leadership. Okay? For judgment, I came into this world. This doesn't mean to bring the final judgment. But, but. You, know, you could say to, to, to see. He's, bringing, he's using his presence in the world brings division, clarity, the ability to rightly recognize things. And so for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Meaning recognize that they are in darkness which again comes from the theme of John, of light and darkness. So I've come into this world that those who cannot see may see, and those who see may be blind. Of course, this makes the leadership incredulous, and they go, are, you, are we blind? If you were blind, you would have no guilt but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The religious leadership of the day, if they had job one, was to point people to the Messiah. If there was one thing that they were to do, it would be to see Jesus. And when he is there, to point others to him. But rather than do that, they try to keep people from Jesus. And so the rebuke is to them. If you were blind, wouldn't have guilt. You, Jesus would help them see. But because you're claiming that you see, you won't even recognize that you're blind, your guilt stays. I forgot I made this note in my outline a few weeks ago, so it's a good note. I'm going to go ahead and just make a comment on it. It just says, comment on arrogance. Huh. Uh, yeah. But here's, here's what I mean. Pride and arrogance 
some of the worst, the worst, most blinding, harming, community dividing sins. Where we assume we know, we live in our confidence, we cast out those who do not, and we create a world that we want to see. And we may not even realize that in that time, we are still in our blindness. Pride is one of those sins that really does keep people from trusting in Jesus because they have to let go of control. And it's really hard to admit that you got it wrong. It's really hard to admit that you've misled people or been misled yourself. At times, that's a lot of crow to eat. And we're often unwilling. This is why I love our kids' ministry and the people who are working there time and time again to show kids how good Jesus is at a young age in hopes, in prayerful anticipation that they're not idiots like their parents. Yeah. Yeah. So I played pickleball the week we were on vacation. Not a lot, but enough. And I play with glasses on like this. And when your head gets sweaty and you start to turn your head, the glasses fly off. And they hit the ground. Now, my vision's okay. I mean, I can basically see you. And it's hard to miss Brad in that shirt today. So um, <laughs> I know he's there. But when your vision goes bad, where do you go? You don't go to me. I can't fix that prescription. And the glasses hit the ground. And so I have that annoying scuff that's kind of almost right where you see. And so you just, it's there, but you can kind of look past it, but you can't because it's right there. None of you can fix that. When you need help seeing, when your prescription goes bad and your eyes age, you probably go to an optometrist. You say, hey, could you, could you help me with this? I just need to be able to get my prescription strengthened. Or could you replace the lens? If you're sick, you probably go to people who can talk to you about your illness. Not that you don't pray. But you talk to people who go, hey, can you help me understand what's going on with my body and why it may not be working the way that it's supposed to? You do that. So, let's raise the stakes. When we're spiritually blind and we can't see the world the right way, and we're valuing the wrong things, we're loving the wrong things, and we're pursuing the wrong things, shouldn't we go to the one who can correct it? And for those who have seen the goodness of Jesus, for those who have been changed by him, shouldn't we still be corrected by his word, helping us to see clearly correcting our misunderstandings, continuing to walk with him so that we are walking in light, not in darkness. 
Whether you need salvation or you are remaining in the Lord even right now, we must go to the one who can give us sight. Who can help us see the right way. Or else, we remain blind. Which is not a way to live. Pray with me. God, you are gracious to us. You are good to us. You are loving toward us. And we praise you for that. It takes a work of your spirit to reveal to us our need. And we ask now in this moment that you would reveal the needs of the men, women, and children in this room to see who they need, your son, and place their trust in him. With whatever might be going on, Lord, we ask this, confident in what you can work out, because we cannot work it out, but Jesus can. So we pray this in his name. Amen. We get to continue in our service with communion. If you're new or newish to Genesis, you realize uh, communion is for anyone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. If that is you and you're here today, we would love for you. In just a moment, you get up and you take the station as the cups are stacked. So you take a stack and you go back to your seat. And you hold on to it because in a moment, Rock, one of our elders, is going to come up. He's going to share with us from the word and we're going to take the elements together. And it's a time for us to remember our Savior who brings light, the one through whom we see. If any of you would like prayer, need prayer for anything, I'll be back there. Uh, would love to pray for you. My wife, Courtney, will be back there with us as well. And uh, if there's anything we could pray for during this time, we'd love to pray for you as well. Let's go to the table.